Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It's good to be together to worship God and to sing. And I uh, think about Phil leading singing tonight. He's been busy this weekend. Uh, I know last night he performed a beautiful wedding ceremony. This morning he preached twice at Creve Hall and now leading singing tonight and doing a tremendous job. We love and appreciate Phil. If you are visiting here for the first time tonight, I assure you that the style of lesson is not the norm. But yet if you've been here for a few weeks and especially for a few months, you know that we have been looking at lessons on the Holy Spirit. And we have looked at either five or six lessons so far on the Holy Spirit. And before we leave this topic that you have mentioned many times, many of you have mentioned how much you appreciate the knowledge that you have gained as we have studied together in the Spirit. I've enjoyed the study, and I hope that we do a lot more of this together. But also, we can't help but be aware of the fact that there is a lot of misunderstanding about the Spirit. Now, I'm a firm believer that in almost every case, the way that you take care of things that are wrong is by studying the things that are right. If you study the truth, then you become aware of the things that are wrong. But yet there are so many things today in our religious culture that are said wrong about the Holy Spirit that I want to beg your patience tonight as we study some of the misunderstandings. And if some of what we talk about goes back to the root of maybe your heritage or, or maybe even a belief that you have today, I hope you understand that it's, it's not an effort to throw rocks at anyone. It's not an effort to bring a person down, but it is an effort to say, okay, out of all of this that surrounds us about the Holy Spirit, what is right? And I believe that one thing that could help us to understand the very root of much of the false teaching about the Holy Spirit. Tonight, we really won't go into a lot of the details but what we're going to try to do is to go back to the, 17th, the 1700s, the 18th century, and see a primary single root that has led to so much today. But to begin that, I would like to uh, take your eyes first to Acts the 8th chapter just to see that our struggle, if you will, if, if you want to put yourself in that category, you may say, I'm not in that category. You may say, I have perfect understanding of the Holy Spirit. But if you say, you know, there's some things I, I don't fully understand, or maybe you say there's some things I misunderstand. All the way back in the first century, near the beginning of the church, we look in Acts, the eighth chapter, and we see that Simon the sorcerer is brought to the Lord. But as the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit were given in the first century, they were, could only be translated over into an individual by the apostles laying on of hands. And so Simon the sorcerer in verse 14, he watches the apostles, that's Peter and John, come to them and, and place this power in their lives that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in verse 15, in verse 16. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. 
And of course, from there, they rebuked him and urged him to repent and pray forgiveness for the sin that he had committed. Isn't that interesting? What he wanted was the gift. The miraculous gift is what he wanted. He wanted the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit that he could pass that on to others, but he wanted it for a fleshly reason. Now, I hope you'll let that sink in in, in, in much more broad in application than just this one topic. There are things in our religion and there are things in our spiritual walk and life with God that if we're not careful, we will want those very things for selfish motives. In other words, it'll literally be the flesh that appears to be driving a spiritual notion and any time that's the case, we're in danger. In other words, Simon was not looking to say, I want to become a more spiritual person. I want to grow closer to God and then make this mistake. Literally, the love of money was the root of this sin. And misuse of the blessings of God was what he wanted to do. And he was corrected in that. So when we look around us today, where did this come from? As we begin, you may think to yourself, I don't understand how this gets back to the Spirit. But if you'll be patient and stay with this for just a few minutes, I think it'll start making sense. The first place we need to start tonight is talking about what does the Bible teach about sanctification. Sanctification from the Bible is linked to the very moment that we are saved. Sanctification, even though we are saved, sanctifies the idea of set apart for a holy service. We still, at that point, are not perfect individuals. Once we're saved, we're still going to sin. Even though we're sanctified, we're still going to sin. But our desire is not only to be holy, but our desire is to be more holy as long as we live. But there is going to be a glorification. There's going to be a perfection. There's going to be a transformation when Jesus comes that is very special. And then we are going to be more like Christ than we have ever been on this earth. For example, look with me in Philippians, the third chapter and verse 20. Philippians, the third chapter, in verse 20 and 21, he says, Paul, writing to those of Philippi, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now pause there for a moment. He's not like seeing a vision of us standing in heaven. He's talking about us on earth right now. Where's your citizenship? Is your citizenship on earth right now? If so, you're living in the flesh. Or is your citizenship in heaven and you're living as the Lord, as your king? If he is your king, your citizenship is in heaven. And so everything you are doing now is under the guidelines of your king for the kingdom in which you are a citizen. And so with that in mind, he says, though, he talks about this change that's going to come when Jesus comes. Look at 21. Who will transform. See, it's future tense. He will. He's going to. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So Paul writes and he says, right now we're on earth, our citizenship is in heaven, but there's coming a time where we're going to be transformed. We're going to be made more like the glorious body of Jesus Christ. Flip over if you will to 1 John 3. 1 John verse, chapter 3, verse 2 and 3 even gives us similar insight and perhaps just a couple more details. In 1 John 3, verse 2 and, and by the way, we're studying this, which you understand for talking about a better understanding of sanctification and also what's going to change in us when Jesus comes. But also notice the end of this, not for this lesson tonight, but for your life. What keeps you pure? 
If you live with the second coming in mind, you will be pure. If you don't live with the second coming in mind, you've lost your motive uh, for being pure. And that's what is talked about here also at the end of verse 2, or the end of verse 3. 1 John 3 and 2, beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, now this is Jesus' second coming, when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. What a change that's going to take place in our bodies, that we will take upon us a glorious body that is like Jesus' body when he appears again. And he says in three, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What's that hope? We should have that hope that we want that kind of perfection. We want that kind of glorification. When Jesus comes again, we want to be changed into a glorification like his. Now, those that are going to receive condemnation, they're not going to receive that kind of glorification. And so John writes about this and says, if we live with that goal in mind, my hope is to be glorified like Jesus when Jesus comes, it ought to spur us on. That's our hope that purifies us so that when someone entices us to do wrong, we say, no, I, I don't want to do that. I'm looking forward to a day when anything I sacrifice here is worth it. But that's another lesson. But how does this tie into the topic tonight? On this next slide, we see, and, and if you want to be turning to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, it'll be just a, just a minute or two before we get there. But if you want to be turning to 1 Corinthians 6, we see going back to John Wesley's teachings in the 1700s. And really much of what we experience here in America in aspects of some of the religious culture as it pertains to teachings of the Holy Spirit uh, and, and I'm not saying all of us by any means, but I'm saying many various religions, their understanding of the Holy Spirit goes back to some of the strong teachings that Wesley did back in the 1700s. And, and a, the, the root of it goes back to this simple point. He believed that justification and sanctification were two different things and that sanctification was a much higher achievement in a Christian's life than justification. Now, keep in mind, justification is a court term. It's to say that, that you stand in a court of law and the Lord says, are you guilty of sin? Yes, I'm guilty of sin. Well, you have to die because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and 23. And the Lord speaks up and says, I will pay their penalty for them. When Jesus pays the penalty for us, we have been justified. Sanctification is that idea that we've been set apart and that we are owned. It's not just separated. We're set apart and we're owned by God. And so now that we're God, for example, in the Old Testament, the, the instruments and the vessels that were in the temple, they were sanctified. They were set apart only for temple service. You and I are set apart from the world only for God's service. And so the, the scriptures teaches us over and over that justification and sanctification are one in the same in the sense they happen at the same time. And there's a lot of terrible false teaching and, and then, of course, false application in individuals' life whenever we separate the two and make... And, and, and just think about this for a moment. How sad it is to say justification is lower than sanctification when you say, how can we be justified? The only way we can be justified is Jesus to die on the cross in our place. Now, you find something that can top that. 
How can you say sanctification tops that? What are you going to pull out that tops Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us? But yet that is the very root of this, this belief in, in many religions. And so what it was that when someone became a Christian, they first were justified, but it was a very low level of Christianity. And in time, they could be sanctified, and it was a much higher level of Christianity. Now, let me give you, uh, let me give you a quote uh, from, from Wesley, just to, uh, to be fair, and we'll let him present himself, if you will. I must turn my pages upside down. Okay. Neither dare we affirm, this is Wesley on this particular topic, neither dare we affirm, as some have done, that all this salvation is given at once. You couldn't have justification and sanctification at the same time. We do not know a single instance in any place of a person's receiving in one and the same moment remission of sins, the abiding witness of the Holy Spirit, and a new and a clean heart. I believe justification to be wholly distinct from sanctification and necessarily an antecedent to it. First must come the lowly justification. Only later can a much higher calling of Christianity be achieved in the life of the individual. Now, is that serious? And, and by the way, again, just a little point for application. Do you realize here we stand uh, some 250 uh, years later. What happens when we begin teaching something just a little bit wrong? When it goes over hundreds of years, how far off course can it come and how many people can it lead off course? Here we are studying one man that has affected millions of people and their belief and their understanding of the Holy Spirit simply because he decided to create a, a break, if you will, in justification and sanctification. Okay, with that in mind, he would say, and, and I'm going to try to illustrate this so that maybe you can paint a picture in your mind. Justification here, the higher is sanctification, and sanctification is eventually going to lead in his teachings to perfectionism. In other words, if you can reach this highest level of achievement, you're going to become a perfect individual. Now, to be fair to him, he did say that those that became perfect they could make mistakes, but they would not sin. And I know that kind of sounds like I don't understand that, but I'm just trying to be fair to him. And I'm not trying to make fun of him. I'm just trying to be very fair. He believed, though, that, that once you reach that level of perfectionism, you could not sin, although you might make mistakes, but God would not hold those mistakes as sin. And that's not really in our study here, except just to understand the level of perfectionism. Here's what he would say under this, and, and you see these quotes here uh, on the screen. Unction from the Holy One teaches them every hour what they shall do and what they shall speak. So if you reach that highest level of sanctification and you say something, could you be wrong? No, because you've moved to perfectionism. Well, who told you to say that? The Holy Spirit told me to say that. Does that sound familiar today? How many people, your co-workers, how many friends have you had that have said, yes, the Spirit has moved me to go and talk to so-and-so? Oh, really? I know the root of that. I know the root of people thinking the Holy Spirit moves their every thought, moves their every action. It goes all the way back to Wesley himself who said, when we reach that perfection, the Holy Spirit 
moves our thoughts. Now here's a problem that goes even beyond that. What happens if someone who believes that they're perfect and the Holy Spirit is moving their every mouth, the, the every word that comes out of their mouth and every action, now think, they believe that, they sincerely believe that. How much desire do you have then to go back and let the Word of God be your guide? Because you already believe you're being guided by a standard of the Holy Spirit directly. And so all of a sudden, the respect for the Word of God is at least a little lower than what you think and what you say because the Holy Spirit has moved your thoughts and your actions. Another quote under it that kind of reveals that. Again, this is from Wesley. As long as he feels nothing but love, talking about someone who's reached this point of perfection. As long as he feels nothing but love animating all his thoughts and words and action, he is in no danger. If love is the motivation of the one who's reached perfection, they truly are perfect, they are sanctified, they've reached this higher level of justification, the Holy Spirit's moving their life, nothing could go wrong at this time. All right, where did it lead us to from there? Coming over into the 19th century, the 1800s, we have revivalism. Now, if any of you had grandparents that had parents or grandparents or great-grandparents back in this time period... Many of you will remember a time where many of our Christian forefathers were not comfortable with the word revival. And I don't know if that rings a bell to your heritage, but many of us are familiar with that. And you say, what could possibly be wrong with the beautiful word revival? That's a beautiful thought, revive us again. Well, it goes back to this time period where there was several things taught that simply were not true, but tied to this term of revivalism. And it came right out of Wesleyanism. And, and so we read about Charles Finney, who was considered the founder of revivalism. And what he did was took almost the very same things of the Wesleyan experience, or let me rephrase that, of the Wesleyan doctrine, and he added experience to it. For example, if you've reached this point of perfection, how do you really know it? And even better that, how does your brothers and sisters in Christ know you've reached it? And so Finney comes along with this, with this new addition to Westernism that says there has to be some kind of experience. If you can't feel it, if, if you can't say, look, they have it now, then you don't know if they really have it or not. And so he literally believed that great preaching included stirring the audience with such emotion that he says they would be swept into a religious experience. And when everybody in the audience had participated in these, these experiences that would have been given to them by the Spirit, you knew that the Spirit was active in their lives. Now, as, as I read these, again, I simply ask for your respect. I, I'm simply going from history, from things that are factual. And I'm not, again, I am not in any way trying to make fun of anyone. But these are some things that, that took place regularly in their assemblies in order to, to stir, uh, to, first to stir the people to prove that the Holy Spirit uh, was among them and active in their lives. Uh, they called it godly hysteria. They called it the jerks where their whole body, every member of their body would shake violently. Others would swoon and fall into a trance where they might sit and stare forward for maybe an hour or more. Others were slain in the Lord where they would just fall over the back of their heels and, and land in the floor. 
Others would have the holy laughs. And there were certain groups and congregations that that was a primary way where, where they would sit and laugh for, for many, many minutes, if not hours. There were others that would have convulsions and shouting. There were others that would practice holy dancing. And there were others that, and keep in mind, I know probably not a whole lot of you guys have gone coon hunting, but if you lived in their day and time, almost all men would have gone coon hunting and probably still coon hunted regularly. So if you think about their culture, one of the things that was very active was that they would tree the devil. And, and when, when they would all be stirred and everyone would be having some kind of experience, many men and women would get on all fours and they would begin howling uh, to tree the devil. And they would also at this time period became more common in America, and that is the rapid speaking in an unknown tongue. These things became a part of the holiness movement in the late 19th century. And probably one of the greatest impacts to this movement was not just as so much a man preaching, but it was one man's book. This man was W.E. Boardman, and he wrote a book. Now, just from what we covered tonight, when I tell you the name of the book, you're going to see the Wesleyan influence in this man's book. The name of the book is The Higher Christian Life. See, don't just live a life of justification. Live a life of sanctification. Reach that higher Christian life where you move to perfectionism, where you experience the Holy Spirit in a powerful way in your life. Because after all, if you're just justified, you don't experience the Holy Spirit. Now, there are all kinds of words, and I put these in quotes so you would see words that you still hear these phrases today. And if you wonder, what are they? I had one of you to ask me not long ago. You said, what, what does it mean when you drive by and you see one of those signs that says full gospel? Well, it's from the Wesleyan belief. And you'll see here, the, which, let me finish that sentence. And, and it's the full gospel. In other words, if you're only going by uh, justification and that's all you preach, they call it a simple gospel. Like they, they would call what we preach a simple gospel. But if you want everything that God has to offer, you have to preach the full gospel and then you can get the full experience. You get the, the whole manifestation of the Holy Spirit and, and you move into perfectionism. And so it's all about dividing justification and sanctification, which the scripture never, never does. Which now I just remembered, I asked you to turn 1 Corinthians 6 a while ago in verse 11 and that was going to prove that. Hold your finger. Let's, let's go back real quick. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You need, you need to see that. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 and 11. Uh, he has said in, in 9 and 10, uh, he has talked about the, uh, those that would not inherit the kingdom of heaven in 9 and 10. He's listed fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, uh, revilers, and extortioners. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. But now look at 11. And such were some of you. In other words, they were that, but, but they've changed their life and now they're saved. What did they do? They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. The Lord is saying the things that he did all at one time. He didn't say they did this and then later on they worked and they became this. They were washed. That was baptism. And in baptism they were justified. That's where their sins were forgiven. Jesus paid their price for them and that's when they were sanctified, they were set apart. And so that, that's very, very important to realize for this. Now, as we go back again 
to this of the, the holiness movement. Notice these phrases. By full trust, we receive full salvation. In a second conversion, it's a much greater conversion than that first one that's only justification. A deeper work of grace. And then, this is the first time in our American culture that the strong emphasis of the Holy Spirit's miraculous work in, in uh, modern day times was linked to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It, it was the holiness movement that, that strong roots all the way back to what we're studying. But that's when it was, okay, you need not just a baptism into Christ for mission of sins. If you're really going to be saved, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know from past studies very recently, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was never commanded. It was what the Jews received in Acts the second chapter, the apostles did on the day of Pentecost, and it's what the Gentiles received in Acts 10. It was what was received in a miraculous fashion at the beginning of Christianity for the Jews and at the beginning of Christianity for the Gentiles. Never since has anybody been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But this is their teaching here, and it became very popular uh, expression uh, in, in what would be later Pentecostalism. And let's look at that. You're very patient and, and we'll move on real quick here. In 1901, is the 1st of January, 1901 Pentecostalism came about and Charles Fox Parham's uh, had a Bethel Bible school and there was 40 students in that school and they decided that what they wanted to do was they wanted to continue this doctrine but take it a step further. And, and when you reach this higher level, the way that, that you are going to really know that you reach perfectionism and what you would experience would demand these three things. And so one is, and this is a quote here, and you'll see the three things. We believe that the full gospel includes holiness of heart and life. Number two, healing for the body. And number three, the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evident, initial evidence of speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. This is the first time that speaking in tongues was the initial evidence that somebody has the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is when Pentecostalism demanded, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have to speak in tongues. I studied with a man one time that he became my good friend. I've, I still talk to him. I was talking to him this past week. And, and on his search for God, he went to many different churches. And he said, one time I went to a Pentecostal church and I went forward to be saved. They just told me to get on my knees and start praying. He said, I didn't know. He was new to religion. He didn't know what they were asking of him. And he said, I sat down on my knees at what he called, the, what they told him was the altar there, and he began to pray. And they never did anything. He just continued to pray. And he kept looking around trying to figure, what are they waiting on? What am I supposed to be doing? And then somebody else came up and prayed, and after a little while praying, they were slain in the Spirit, and they fell over. And then somebody else prayed for a little while and they were slain the Spirit and they fell over. And he said, I kept thinking, I'm not praying right. The Spirit's not slaying me. I don't know what to do. And so he said, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. He said, finally, after about 20 minutes, I got so embarrassed, I just slew myself. He said, I just fell out on the floor so I could go home. Now, now when, when, you, when you think about, you think about this, what, what is the, the, the Pentecostal faith here is saying if you don't make your life holy, and that, that's very good, isn't it? The second thing they're saying is, if you can't heal yourself, there's got to be healing. About I had, a, I had a, a, a visitor to come back in the office one Monday morning and chew me out because we were not a holy church because there were people coughing in the audience. If you were a holy church, you could heal yourself. And, and it's this idea that you've not reached sanctification if 
You cannot heal yourself. And, and then finally, if you haven't been baptized uh, by the Holy Spirit, and you know if you can do that, if you can speak in tongues. But then finally, and, and this is where uh, it, it really, I think, is important. And I'll try my best to hurry. Go to this next slide and no, notice Neo. Pentecostalism that came about in 1953. It was a group of men that were businessmen. They came together for the full gospel business men's fellowship international. And, and what happened? And again, I just want to remind you how important our actions are and how they can spring into so many other lives. And this is a perfect example. These men were Pentecostal that formed this, but what they did was they invited all their business friends that were of all kinds of denominations and they invited them to come in. And what they would do in these services as they would eat a meal together because it was a, a day in the week and it was either a breakfast or a lunch and they would eat that meal together and then different ones of them would get up and they would begin to talk about the experience that they had with God and with the Holy Spirit and how their life has not been the same since. For example, here's a typical testimony. It would say like this, a man would stand up and say, and I'm not doubting his sincerity, but he would stand up and say, I was in dire straits really in desperate trouble. My marriage was on the rocks. I was in financial difficulty. I was in poor health. I was at my wits end. I did not know where I could turn to next. My heart was hungry. And then I had this remarkable experience. It was wonderful. My life has never been the same since. This satisfying, thrilling experience brought strength into my life. Everything's different now. This transforming experience filled me with power to testify my faith in Jesus. It brought peace to my heart and made me love God. My business is prospering. I don't feel just half alive anymore. I'm on fire for the Lord. And literally, out of these seeds came the charismatic movement because there was all kinds of denominations there where the men went back to their denomination. And now you name a denomination and they have branches of charismatic movements where the desire is, I want to have some kind of experience that takes over my life so I can testify before my church family of this huge difference that has been made in my life because of that one-time experience. Do you remember what happened in Acts 2? Do you remember the Holy Spirit was poured upon them and they spoke in unknown tongues? They had the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. And do you remember when Peter stood up to preach that day? He said... Brethren, I want to tell you about this awesome experience I had this morning. I want to tell you about how my life has never been the same. I want to see you guys get stirred up and I want to see you have an experience today and we're going to bring 3,000 souls to the Lord. Now you and I need to take this serious. There's a reason why Peter had a miraculous experience and he stood up and he said, I want to preach to you about Jesus. And there wasn't a crazy emotional swell. He dealt with their logic, with their mind. He wanted them truly convicted to God's word. Because we can't go through life letting our feelings and our emotions direct us and live a holy life. 
God's Word is the only thing in this room that is divine. God's Word is the only thing on this earth that is divine. And how awesome it is that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. But let's make sure that we don't ever fall in line of where our nation is America. So many in the religious have gone back and you, it is so easy to study the trail and see the things that simply have been mistaught. There's too much good to teach. Let's make sure that before we talk about what the Holy Spirit does or doesn't do, let's make sure that God's been the one to tell us that. Not roots that go back to Wesley. This evening, thank you for your patience. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, come as we stand as we sing.